Well, again, it is uh, good to be with you this morning. We're continuing our sermon series, walking through the taglines of our, uh, of our congregation, of, of, of our, our slogans and logos, uh, uh, dig in, branch out, and now we're in live it up. And uh, a number of, uh, a few months ago when Tom was handing out the uh, sermon assignments, who was going to be preaching when, and I saw my date October 16th, I'm, oh, I'm in the live it up series, what's, what's the subject? He said, it's suffering. I'm like, oh, okay, I guess I'm getting that because I'm the cares pastor. But, you know, even for me, I'm like, how, do, how does this square, what do you mean? Talk to me about this. How does living it up square with the reality of suffering? Because when I think about suffering, I think about the, the death of a loved one, I think about injustice, I think about a marriage falling apart. That doesn't sound like living it up. You know, 20 years ago, I was uh, on a conference, a week-long conference, and, and a friend of mine, someone I was going to seminary with, uh, we decided after the day's events, we would go on a walk on the beach. We were, we were in Florida in the Panhandle. And we went for this long walk, um, kind of at, at dusk. And we began talking about our, our at that time, fledgling marriages uh, and uh, the joys of it, but, but also the, uh, the mistakes, uh, the unexpected tension, the unexpected conflict, uh, how things had gone sideways on us. And I could sense that as we were talking about it, you know, I had sort of a bit of levity about it because I felt like things were going well in my marriage, although I, I did dumb things. But there was something else going on with my friend. Finally, we, after walking for about 20 minutes, we decided to sit down and just listen to the, to the waves crashing on the, uh, the shoreline. I didn't, see, didn't say anything for a long time. And then very quietly said, my wife told me she doesn't love me anymore. Now, being the uh, Bible answer man in training that I was, <laughs> I felt this unbelievable urge to say something that would fix this, to, to restore the smile to his face, to have him leave that conversation with a skip in his step. But the thing was, I was so overwhelmed by what he just told me and the pain that he was feeling. All I could think of was how awful this was, which left me speechless. Isn't our faith supposed to equip us to handle tough stuff like that and fix it right away? Doesn't our faith tell us, instruct us that we should know how to be happy all the time? Well, if we really read the Bible, we see that the Bible is far from telling us any of that. The Bible doesn't tell us that we should run from our pain or keep our distance from people who are experiencing pain because they're negative and they're kind of down, so we've got to stay away from them lest they bring us down. The Lord leads us to walk through suffering, to feel it, to learn from it, to have it create a longing in us for someone to come and put it truly right. And we see an example of this intentional embrace of suffering lots of places in the Scripture, but one that jumps out to me and one that I've gone to again and again and again uh, in the writings of the prophet Jeremiah and Lamentations. And the context there is that Jeremiah loves the capital city of, of, uh, of God's nation, Jerusalem, but he's just seen it destroyed at the hands of 
uh, pagan invaders. And really, the only thing you need to know about it is that his heart is broken. Can you relate? Can you relate to a broken heart? This is how Jeremiah put it into words. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He's talking about his feeling, how he feels God has been disposed towards him. He made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in the ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you this morning. We ask that by your spirit, as, as your spirit has already been leading us in worship, would your spirit continue to lead us in worship as we submit ourselves to your word this morning. Father, by your spirit, help us to understand this seemingly contradictory message of living it up and suffering. Help us to understand what it is to enter into pain, that we might come through it in a way which is a blessing to us and, and testifies to your glory. Work this in us this morning, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the scriptures tell us that Christ came to give life and to give it what? To give it what? Abundantly. Give it abundantly. So why are we talking about suffering? Why are we talking about things which suck the life from us, things that are soul-crushing? Well, if we read the scriptures, we see that actually this topic of suffering is one that's a constant theme as God interacts with his people. We see the word suffer, at least in the English Standard Version, the, the word suffer or some conjugation of it 119 times. We see weep or weeping 101 times, pain 59 times, afraid 165 times, the need for comfort, the word comfort, 81 times. And that's pointing out that this very poignant passage in Lamentations doesn't use any of those words. And yet talks about it very, very powerfully. The idea of suffering. And just the name alone, Lamentations. What's a book like named Lamentations doing in the Bible? It's because the people experience suffering. And we see this very graphic description of the anguish of a broken heart. Suffering is a part of life, even the Christian life. So the question for us is not so much why we suffer. We could spend a sermon series on what the why of suffering. But, but how should we suffer well? How should the Christian and the follower of Christ suffer well? Do we, do we fight it? Do we resist it? Do we deny it? Do we try to wish it away with some pithy Bible verse? How do we live it up in the midst of feeling that our life is being drained away in suffering? We have 
a word from God, and the Lord speaks to it. In fact, the Lord speaks to suffering more often than he speaks to most any other subject. And he doesn't paper it over with platitudes and slogans. He's, he wants us to intentionally engage in it because he will use it for our good and for his glory. To summarize what we're talking about this morning, our main idea or the sermon in a sentence is that the Lord redeems all things, even suffering for the good of his children. So don't run away from it. Engage it. Engage in the trials and sufferings around you. Well, how does the Lord redeem suffering? One of the ways he uses it is to teach. So teach us something. All of life's experiences have the potential to teach us something about the nature of life. If we can get some distance from our anguish, and I'm not saying pack it away, but if we can just sort of get a little intellectual distance, maybe we'll be able to see those lessons. And there's lots of different ways in which we suffer. Certainly there's, there's illness, injustice, uh, natural disasters. We certainly know about them here in St. Louis. Flooding, for instance. Some of you have experienced that. Uh, war. These cause suffering. But some pain come not from those things. They come from our sinful choices. Uh, we indulge ourselves in lustful appetites. We lie to the people we love, we cheat our employer, uh, and these can have painful consequences. And when we're experiencing that pain, we often say, Lord, why am I suffering? And he speaks to us in First Peter and basically says, you're suffering because it's the wage of your wrongdoing. And so the first lesson we can draw is, listen, if you're doing dumb things, stop doing that. <laughs> yes, there's grace. But the wisdom that's offered to us in some of our suffering is stop banging your head with a hammer. I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about that, though, because much of the suffering we experience comes unprovoked from the fallen world. And oftentimes that pain, all pain is unwelcome, but that pain is particularly unwelcome because we can't seem to connect it logically to our own behavior. Why is it that we suffering these things? We don't see some obvious connection. If we stole from our boss and we go to jail, okay, that makes sense. And when we experience some other suffering, we say, well, what did I do, God, that you're getting me this way? And sometimes there isn't an answer to that, at least not in that. There's, that's the wrong way to approach the subject, maybe is the right way to say that. When we can't connect it to some failure or limitation on our own part, we say, what purpose can God have in allowing us to suffer? When the corporate headquarters of the company you've worked for for 25 years, after you being loyal to them, after two moves and a pay cut, they give you a call and they say, we're eliminating your job. Now, what's the lesson there in the Lord's providence? Is it that I should never trust the boss? I should work for myself? I should never give my best for the man because the man's never going to give his best to me. Are those the lessons that we need to learn from that kind of experience? The Lord is taking the crucible of this fallen world and using it to refine and purify us, to strengthen us, and the process is painful. But he's using it to make you mature. And Christ-like. Romans 5 talks about this. 
Paul talks about his sufferings. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us, which is another way of saying we've been given new life in the Holy Spirit. That hope does not disappoint. And as we experience these sufferings, it it, it produces in us a greater trust in what God has given us. So in the end, the great lesson that that we're, we're taught in suffering is always trust. Trust God. We say to ourselves, okay, Lord, you're taking me into some deep waters here, but I'm going to trust that you have something for me in it. And it's in those dark moments that we learn some powerful truths. We learn that money and power and influence can never truly save. They can stave off certain kinds of suffering for a time, but not forever. Only one who has conquered death holds any lasting hope for any of us, and only Jesus Christ can make that claim. Again, none of this is pleasant. But like a parent training a child in something that they don't want to learn, whether it's how to study or to tie their shoes or mow the lawn, the child thinks you're making them do some of the worst things imaginable. But you know it's done in love. And the Lord does it in love because he desires for us to become more than what we are right now. But we can't always summarize the purpose behind our suffering, the meaning of our suffering in some simple life lesson. It is not reduced so easily to a proverb, a proverb with a small p, some maxim, some wise saying. Sometimes the Lord allows us to experience suffering for something more profound. He allows us to experience suffering that we might truly experience the preciousness of life. Now, as a theologian, Uh, As an apologist, as an amateur astronomer, the preciousness of life jumps out at me as an obvious truth, but but we we lose sight of it often. Uh, As as those things, as a theologian, an amateur astronomer, you know, I I look to the stars, I look in the telescope, I, I look at some of the pictures from the Hubble telescope, and I see the majesty of the created universe, uh, the 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 glory of a ringed planet, uh, the amazing pictures of uh, the pillars, what are called the pillars of creation. It's a, it's, a, it's a planetary nebula that's a stellar nursery. Stars are born there. Seeing galaxies, if I can use a line from the Big Daddy Weave song, see galaxies spin in a heavenly dance. Oh, it's glorious. But for all its majesty, space, the prevailing truth of space is that it's a cold and lifeless place. Scientists say there has to be life out there. I know it, there has to be. But the truth is the only place where we know it is, where we do see it, is here. In an infinite universe, only here do we have life. How precious is that? How amazing and utterly astounding is that truth, even if you're not a Christian? We see it in the very first few sentences of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
And the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. There was nothing and then God spoke and then there was something. How awesome is that? And that's not, and the Lord didn't leave it without form and void. He filled it with animals and plants and trees and people. But we lose sight of that utterly amazing truth, the amazing nature of the life we're given. We're, we're paying bills, we're changing diapers, we're trying to please our boss, we're trying to please our spouse, we're trying to be productive by working on our computer and our computer just constantly is giving us fits. And we lose sight of how amazing life is. And the Lord uses many things to try and bring out the preciousness of life to remind us. Sometimes it's a simple pleasure, like a little girl holding a daddy's hand. There are moments like that I have, and I I just think, man, this is amazing. But sadly, it's typically suffering that refocuses my attention and refocuses our attention. Many of you uh, know or knew Ellen Redelfs. If you did not, she was a longtime member here at Green Tree, uh, a lay leader, a, a Stephen minister. She was someone who walked with people in their pain, even while she was suffering herself. And she suffered greatly. She had breast cancer, and then she suffered from a de- disease that was induced by her radiation treatment that eventually took her eyesight. And then struggled with esophageal cancer, also induced by her radiation treatments. She passed away not that long ago. And her funeral was here last Saturday. And Jill Muller, her fellow fellow Stephen minister and longtime friend, told the story at Ellen's funeral of their final meeting. And they knew it was going to be their final meeting, or had some sense of it. And they talked and they exchanged words and they were, they were good words. But what stood out to me from the story that Jill told was the moment of their last embrace. Jill leaned in for one last hug as she was saying goodbye and their cheeks touched. And perhaps they pressed in ever, pressed in ever so slightly. And it was a bittersweet moment of connection between these two ladies who loved the Lord. Bitter because of the impending farewell, but that farewell was only bitter because of the sweetness of the relationship that they had. And sometimes it's only in moments like that that we see the power of what God has given us. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, wrote this, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. In suffering, God has our attention. So, Lord, what is it that you want me to learn here? What is it that that you want from me? And in the suffering, often what God is calling us to do is to enter into that, to do hard things, intentionally head into life, which means also intentionally heading into the suffering, heading into the pain that we're experiencing in this life. Pain that's even hard to simply acknowledge, let alone process. 
Also, back to C.S. Lewis in the book, his book, The Problem of Pain, he says this, mental pain is less dramatic than physical pain, but it is more common and also more hard to bear. The frequent attempt to conceal mental pain increases the burden. So as we try to deny it and say, no, no, uh, how are you doing? No, I'm okay. I'm fine. I'm doing all right. That actually we're making things worse for ourselves. That's what he's saying. Then he writes this, it is easier to say my tooth is aching than to say my heart is broken. But the only way to know the preciousness of life is to be open to that brokenness, the suffering and the pain. And that takes discipline, it takes intentionality to dig deep enough. Let me give you an example of this. Uh, many years ago when I was in seminary, I attended a church, a Grace and Peace Fellowship, and the pastor there was a gone middleman. And uh, I was, it was in those first few years at seminary that I got to know Agon, and he was uh, a great teacher of grace. He was um, a very intellectual person, a very intense person, but a very loving person, uh, a, a wonderful mentor. So you can imagine the heartache that all of us felt when on one cold March day in 1994, we heard the news that he had taken his own life. At the funeral, we did it as typically Grace and Peace does. There's a long liturgy typed out from some book of the Bible. Maybe it was Ephesians, maybe, maybe it was Philippians, I don't recall. Uh, what the structure of the liturgy was, but all the hymns were typed out, and we sang the hymn, O Sacred Head, that we sang earlier. Now, we only sang three stanzas of that, but does anybody know how many stanzas there really are to the whole hymn? Karen says, there's a lot. (laughs) I know of 11. And I looked at the liturgy, and there weren't 11 there, but there were eight. I was like, whoa, this is going to be, uh, this is going to be bad. This is, this is just so long. How, how can we sing that the whole way through? We start singing, engaged in the solemn music, the, the powerful, true words there. But by the third stanza, I was starting to feel a little done. Made it through the fourth stanza. I get into the fifth stanza, and I'm like, this is getting old. You know, I'm sort of disengaged now from what's happening around me. But then we got to stanza six, six, which was the third one we sang this morning. And it, said, it, it says this, What language shall I borrow to thank thee, dearest friend, for this thy dying sorrow, thy pity without end? Oh, make me thine forever, and should I va- fainting be, Lord, let me never, never outlive my love to thee. And the Spirit finally pierced through my reasonable management of my grief. You know what I mean when I say that? The reasonable management of my grief? How are you doing? It's hard. But I'm okay. And I started bawling. And I bawled through the next two stanzas. But I was finally grieving. I was finally worshiping. I was finally living the moment that I was really in. And when you're suffering, you know, you need to spend time processing um, that with the Lord. So that requires intentional engagement. 
And I would say do it through prayer and meditation or through singing songs of praise and lament, uh, through reading the laments in the Psalms, through writing down your own prayers and poetry, uh, go walking in the woods. One of the things I did after my father died, one of his favorite hymns was uh, Be Thou My Vision. I would go to the grave and I would sing that hymn. It can be lots of different things. A walk in the woods. But they need to be things that help you walk into the suffering and not distract you from it. And in this way, you can come through to a place of recognizing the preciousness of what you've been given. And the Bible offers us wisdom, lessons in living life. It points out the preciousness of life. And that can be a comfort. But what does the Bible have to say about death? Because in the end, what we need is not simply wise words or sweet moments. We need life. And we need life that's stronger than death. Successful careers, sports trophies, on the shelf, nice cars, in the garage, a house on the lake. These are not the abundant life. They're distractions from it. They're things that help us run away from the fact that we all face death. But suffering points out the truth. It points out the decay. And we need to get our heads wrapped around that, that we need life. We need real life. And this is what Jesus offers through his own suffering and what he teaches us in our own suffering. John 16, Jesus has been talking about the things that the disciples would suffer. He says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. The Bible never teaches us that being a Christian means you're going to be happy all the time. In fact, it teaches the exact opposite. That you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus, as the Son of God, saw disorder in the world. He saw its pain and suffering and death, and he left this comfortable place. He took on human existence to show, its, to show us how it's done, but also to take on our judgment, to serve and to suffer, but also to overcome death and his resurrection. And he invites you into that triumph, into that victory by trusting him and learning that trust in suffering. This was the great desire of Paul, to know the power of the resurrection by sharing in Christ's sufferings. We see it in Philippians 3, verse 10. He says that his desire is that that I know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And as we enter into that abundant life of faith, even in the midst of deep darkness, we discover the true meaning of joy. Because death loses. The thing that is the specter in all of our lives, the thing we worry about when our children go out and they don't come back on time, when our spouse disappears for an hour and we're like, where the heck are they? And you're starting to get ready to call the insurance company. The great good news and joyful reality is death loses. 
Revelation 21. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Why? Because the former things have passed away. Jesus makes it all new. And as we enter into suffering with hope and with strength and and that power, we are living it up by living intentionally in that moment, knowing that this suffering is not what defines us. Living this way serves also as testimony to the power of the life Jesus gives us. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be made manifest in our bodies. When we suffer, and we suffer well, because of our faith, because of our trust, the world looks at us and says, I don't understand that. Why is that? We live it up in suffering by intentionally entering into it and the world takes note. Again, we have this line, live it up. Most of us only have the shallowest understanding of what that really means. Most of us are really running from life. When my friend told me that his wife didn't love him anymore, I wanted him to run from that truth. I wanted to give him something that would escape it, to deny it. But Jesus offers something so much more powerful. Jesus gives us the strength and hope to enter into it and overcome it. Is that the kind of power you want in your life? Is that the kind of life you want to lead? We have an opportunity right now as we enter into a time of prayer to maybe begin walking down that path of entering into the suffering, entering into the pain that we're currently experiencing or maybe something we experienced 10 years ago and we still have not processed. The Lord wants to bring healing. So as I pray, closing the sermon, I want you to be thinking about what suffering are you experiencing right now? And begin bringing that to the Lord. And talking like Jeremiah did. Lord, this is horrible. Help me bear it. So I'll pray, but we'll have a time of silence where you pray privately with yourself. And then we'll enter into a time of worship. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us this morning. As hard as it is, as, as, as challenging as it is, we pray that you would impress upon us that you love us, even in that suffering, and that you have something for us, a lesson of life, uh, a realization of the preciousness of life, and perhaps even more profound that the great answer to our suffering is found in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who overcomes death. And so while we experience it briefly in this life, we know it is not the final word, but that life eternal is. Father, we are all here this morning 
struggling and, and, and suffering with something. Some, sometimes it's, it, it, it may be something uh, small, but, but it may be something that, that threatens to completely overwhelm us. Father, by your spirit, help us to speak truth to you this morning that our hearts are broken. And by your spirit, help us to begin bearing that well. Hear our prayers now for the sake of Jesus. Father, as your spirit has helped us to walk, begin walking down this path, help us to continue walking down the path as we worship you in song now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.